0: Hello everybody, welcome to episode 13 of the Synopsis. I am Zach and welcome back. Today's episode is gonna be a doozy, as they say. We are gonna be looking at mysteries, unidentified murder cases, unidentified people, a lot of kind of mysterious kind of vibes going on today. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know I enjoyed researching all this stuff, but of course, first and most foremost, we gotta do a This Time Online, and ironically, This Time Online is actually going to lead into one of our first stories today on our Unidentified People Slash Mysteries Unsolved. So kick back, relax, and grab yourself a little snacky snack because it's going to be here for a while. All of this and more on today's episode number 13 of The Synopsis. Starting off with This Time Online, the stuff that is trending on Twitter. The untimely death, I guess, of Toni Morrison Dies 88 years old today. She is trending. She died in a New York hospital. The novelist had been in there for a while. So rest in power. Miss Morrison, Tony Morrison are all trending on Twitter. So unfortunately she has died. So my thoughts go out to her and her family. I honestly didn't know who Tony Morrison was until I just saw this trending. So honestly, I can't really talk much about the subject, but it is out trending on a Tuesday. I record my episodes. Hopefully every day in advance this way if i have a problem or an issue arises i can have an extra day to record if i need to so this is being recorded on a tuesday it will be uploaded on wednesday so hopefully i can get that monday wednesday friday three days a week podcast keeping it going for you guys that way you can enjoy it that way you can have fun with it and that way we can keep this family thing going we can keep this trend going of all of us working together everyone helping me and that way, hey, if I get extra guests on here or co-hosts who want to do stuff with me, we have a backup series just in case then I don't have time to record something because of work or life or whatever it may be. Also on the trending page today, we have Wayne Rooney. Now, for my U.S. fans, you may know him as the man who plays for D.C. United. For my English fans, you obviously know Wayne Rooney as the former England captain, the former Man United player, the former Everton player. You will know who Wayne Rooney is if you're English. And if you're American, you might know who he is because of the U.S. Major League Soccer. Wayne Rooney really is trending today because he has joined Derby County as a player-slash-manager for the 2020 season. Now, if you don't know who Derby County are, Derby County are in the second-tier English League, which is known as the Championship. It's one league below the Premier League. English soccer-slash-football works different to American sports. In America, you have your four groups, like for your NFL, your North, your NA, you know, you have your AFC, your NFC, all that stuff. It works a little bit different in England. We have a table, you know, the team who goes first gets promoted, the last three teams get relegated to the next tier division, and it goes down and down the chain until you get like to basically part-time soccer slash football and all that good stuff. So Wayne Rooney joining Derby County is kind of a big deal in England because he hasn't really been seen on the scene a lot when he went back to Everton after his stunt with Manchester United. He didn't really perform well, he wasn't really appreciated, so he went off to DC for a season or two trying to make that little extra coin, you know, kind of like Beckham did or Robbie Keane or Zlatan Ibrahimovic, all those people, David Villa, um, Giovanni, a lot of people went to the MLS to try and make it a big league. Also, talking of big leagues, you want to look out for the Chinese Super League. They're trying to bring in a lot of new players like older English legends like Didier Drogba. And people like that to try and give them a big name. So, look, check out the Chinese Super League soccer. It may not be high standard, but there's a lot of big names apparently that are supposed to be going into it. So, that'll be interesting for you guys to pay attention to, especially if you're a soccer fan. Obviously, the MLS isn't the go to source in the US. In UK, US and UK, the EPL, the English Premier League, is what everyone goes to to watch, which starts this Saturday. Well, technically, it starts Friday. Liverpool are playing in the first game of the season and everyone else is playing Saturday. Liverpool and Manchester City just played in the Community Shield in which Manchester City won 5-4 on penalty kicks. So Manchester City already gaining their first silverware of the season. Could it be a sign of things to come? I'm not sure. Myself, personally, I'm a Wolverhampton Wanderers fan. I see us going far in the Europa League. I see us pushing up the table in the Premier League this season and hopefully we're going to be having a really good season with the signing of Valhalla, keeping in um, Jimenez. And bringing in a couple of extra people to really boost the strength in our team. I was a little bit upset that we put, held the Costa on loan to Leeds United. And my US listeners aren't going to know what the hell I'm talking about. but My UK listeners will understand me. So hopefully they at least can try and translate for you. or try and give you some backstory of it. So again, on the Anchor.fm app. Or on Twitter, I like Talis Chef. Or even on Instagram. If you have me added on Instagram, you know what my Instagram is. If not, leave a message on the Anchor app or something like that. I get back to you, I can help you understand more of this soccer talk slash football talk or whatever it may be. We can communicate more, we can make it more of a fan-friendly kind of service and everyone gives me ideas. I have a lot of ideas from fans. One of the biggest reasons I have this podcast going as much as I do is because I have a lot of people giving me ideas on what to talk about. I've said it before in previous podcasts, it's kind of difficult for me to be talking to a screen for an hour, an hour and a half or whatever it is, every other day or every day to try and figure out what to talk about. Because there's so many things, but once you don't have anyone bouncing off of it, doesn't give you a chance to take a break. I can't sit here and talk about what we're going to talk about today and then have somebody else chime in and be like, oh yeah, well, here's my opinion on it. That then helps the podcast go longer, it helps more interesting, because then people have different opinions, and people have different takes, and they can listen to those and basically form their own opinion from it. If you just got me here, your boy's slowly talking into this Samsung microphone, what he got from Best Buy, and his shitty little laptop that who's only barely able to keep the recording sane and not delete everything, then you're only getting one man's opinion. Like I said, if you like that opinion, hey, cool. I'm awesome. Good for you guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate you listening, that's for sure. I especially appreciate the sponsors that we have and the people who are supporting the channel, the podcast. We are on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Anchor. We are on a bunch of different sites. So... Any way you can listen to podcasts, you can listen to the synopsis, just type us in the search bar, we will be there. So that is very helpful for those who are helping sponsor us and those who are supporting the channel. It helps us grow. I'm not trying to preach like YouTubers, I've said it before and I'll say it again. YouTubers are all based on algorithms and likes and subscribes and stuff like that. I don't have a subscriber base, I don't have a like base, anything like that. All I have is a podcast which I talk to you guys. I have one rating on the Apple Podcast, which is a five star. That's kind of a vibe. So, if you have Apple Podcasts and you want to go ahead and hit us up there with those star ratings, maybe that can get us a little bit more viewership because of our rating. I don't know. I don't know how it works, but thanks for listening. Either way, irregardless, we'll keep it moving with what else is trending today. The last thing, second from last thing, I should say, we're going to talk about today is the 74th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing. If you don't know what the Hiroshima bombing is, I'm going to give you a little history lesson really quick. 1945, on August 6th, the US, with the consent of the United Kingdom, bombed uh, Hiroshima with nuclear weapons. In August 9th, they also bombed Nagasaki. Hiroshima was the biggest one. Everyone remembers Hiroshima, not as much Nagasaki, because Hiroshima is still under the effects of the Mushroom Clouds and the atomic bombs right now. It has... Been a major city since 2011. It took that long for it really to come back into existence. People are still feeling the effects of Hiroshima. There are a lot of kids who are getting cancer, a lot of kids who are getting mutations, and that may be something we talk about in another podcast diseases and stuff like that, and effects of nuclear weapons and that. But today is the 74th anniversary of Hiroshima. I figured i just put that out there, so those who don't know about it, you can look into it, you can research it a little bit, and kind of just find out what I'm talking about. I don't want to go too much into the introductions. I know my introductions can run long, but at the same time, if it's trending, if it's something we can talk about, we're going to talk about it before we get into the main subjects today, of the missing people slash identities, crisis, all that good stuff. And that's what leads us to our very last trending thing today. And it's a doozy, and it's going to start us into this podcast. And it's going to be involving the 66 Garage Man. And if you haven't heard of the 66 Garage Man, he's trending right now on Twitter for a very good reason. And we are going to start discussing him right after this break. Right after this, we're going to jump right into the podcast. The month is June, the year is 1999, and we are in California, the home of love, you know the song by Tupac, California Love. That song, yeah, I'm not a singer, there's a reason I do podcasts, and there's a reason I stream and play video games, that's it. I don't really stream much. I am getting off topic, let me go back into it. The month is June, it is 1999, we're in California, and we have had a car accident, we have had a crash, and there is one man who is in hospital, with a a wristband, all it says on his base is Garage 66, or 66 Garage, either way, same thing. This man is now in a vegetative state, he has tubes in him, he has life support, he is in hospital, no one can find family, he has no identification on him, he has no driver's license. Apparently, he has just got across the Mexican border, he's not far into the states, and boom, There's that car crash. This man is now unidentifiable. 20 years later, we are in 2016. A journalist decides, hey, you know what? This guy's been kept alive for 17 years without anybody knowing who he is, without any insurance, without any information about this guy. He's in a vegetative state. For all the doctors know, this guy is already technically brain dead. If he's vegetative, that means he is brain dead. But they're still keeping him alive, and they're doing this with the hope that one day they can find out this man's identity, find out this man's family, maybe get something, maybe get the rights to pull the plug. If there is not a DNR, they have to technically keep him alive, even if they feel like he's in that vegetative state. They cannot pull the plug without a next of Kings consent, and they can't do that unless they figure out the dude's name. So this journalist finds out about her name is Joan Freyon, and if I've said that wrong, if it's Joanne, I apologize. But she is from the L.A. Times. She spent four years trying to prove who this man was and to prove that he was still conscious and still had some brain activity. So this woman started doing a long, long research. He would have probably been buried by the name 66 Garage if the people didn't decide to look for his family, look for any identification. Somebody went into the room he was in and was like, This guy, I have no idea about him. We're gonna figure out who he is and we're gonna try and do that. Rumour has it. The doctors said that he was had no awareness of his surroundings. The authorities, which is ICE and the police, all that stuff, assumed he was undocumented because he only had some pesos in his hands, in his pocket. It's his hand, in his pocket, his front pocket. He had pesos in his pocket. Pesos are the Mexican currency here. You didn't know what that was, so UK fans, hey there you go, you now know what a peso is. Teaching things here on the synopsis. So they assumed he was illegal, they assumed he just crossed the border, got into a car accident, fickle fate, and here he is, vegetative state. Completely screwed, nobody knows who he is. This uh, this in journalist, Yep, I, I guess we'll call her an investigator right now, she's an investigating journalist. And I'll call her an investigator for now because she really did find out who this guy's name was so she had checked between the years of 2015 and 2017 she looked up this man she found out what his name was Ignacio, Ignacio, Ignacio friends called him Nacho, she found his friends, she found his family she managed to find out a lot about him he had been struck by a pickup truck with another car and he was helped by another immigrant on the border patrol to get out and to find out who he was and again these are one of the, these stories are kind of crazy to me because I'm looking at the story as I talk to you guys about it so I'm kind of scrolling through the facts and the bullet points that I made and it kind of goes all over the place because when you're dealing with somebody who isn't identifiable how do you tell a story like the Summerton man we talked about yesterday How do you talk about a story of a man who has no identification? The story gets confusing, and it gets confusing because you can't use names. I can't say, okay, Gregory was talking to Ed, and Ed spoke to Alice, and Alice was the one who told the police. I'm basically saying A spoke to B, who spoke to C, who spoke to F. There's so much going around, it's just very difficult to understand and figure out. So this man ended up being discovered, his name was Nacho, that's what his friends called him. She used border patrol and immigration services to get fingerprints to finally figure out who this man was. They finally figured him out after 19 plus years. They discovered who this man was, they managed to get a contact of his family. And the man is still on support right now. Still on life support. There is a podcast out there, I think it was called The One or The Rod One or something like that, that they'd go in depth to discuss this. That's why it's trending on Twitter. And that's why it's something, if you want to check it out, go ahead and check it out. I figured I'd just throw that one in there because we're talking about disappearances and missing people and stuff like that today. And since that was trending, it was kind of good to have have that nice little introduction into what we're going to be talking about. So what we're going to talk about for our first technical mysterious men, women, slash whatever, is the infamous D.B. Cooper. Now, he went by the name Dan Cooper, but because of miscommunication by the media... He now is D.B. Cooper. For those who don't know, D.B. Cooper is a unidentified man, obviously. That's the theme of this podcast today. He hijacked a Boeing 727 aircraft in the United States in 1971. So, back then, obviously, they didn't have the TSA. There wasn't terrorist attacks as frequently as there is now. Stuff wasn't as lax on security. So here we are. Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, because Thanksgiving is on the 25th for my UK viewers, US, I think that's right, correct me if I'm wrong. A man walked onto the plane carrying a black case. He kind of just had it with him, you know, like a suitcase, called himself Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket flight to Seattle. It's only a 30-minute trip from where he was going from. He was traveling, if I'm not mistaken, let me double check to get it right, because I don't want to screw it up. Yep, he was traveling from Portland, Oregon, to Seattle, Washington, which is only a 30-minute flight, a couple of, uh, couple of thousand miles, nothing big. He boarded this aircraft, the 727, like we said, and took his seat right next to a passenger cabin. He has a cigarette on him, he orders a bour- bourbon and soda. Now, remember, this is 1974. Back then, you could drink on planes, you could smoke on planes, you could still drink on planes today, but obviously, they're limited, it's watched. And you can't smoke anymore because it interferes with aircraft, apparently. Same with cell phones, all this crap. Flight laws have changed a lot in the past 50 years. And if I'm correct, it is 40 or 50 years, whatever it may be. But ever since 9-11, realistically, a lot has changed on planes. A lot has changed on traveling. We have TSA now. We have a lot more stricter security. We can't just walk onto a plane. We've got to go through security. We've got to go through tunnels. Only on the little airports are you really going to try and board a full plane just by walking up onto it. This was kind of like that. So, a lot of passengers described him as a man in his mid-40s. He was about 5'10 to 6 foot, well-dressed man. And you can look up the name DB Cooper, and there was a police sketch of him. He looks like a secret agent. He really does. He just looks like a normal guy who you would... If you've ever seen Burn Notice, he looks a lot like an older version of Michael Weston. If you haven't seen Burn Notice, look up Michael Weston. I think the guy's name is Jeffrey Donovan. I think that's his name plays the character, he looks a lot like him. So, we're about a third of the way, departed from Portland, we're going on to Seattle, it's 2.50. Mr. Cooper hands a note to the flight attendant, and the flight attendant's like, oh, it's probably the dude trying to give me his phone number, whatever, she just threw it away. And her little carry-on bag, whatever it is, what it is. Mr. Cooper sees this, and he says, oh, hey, you might, uh, you might want to check that note. It's, uh, it's me basically telling you I have a bomb. So he had written out this hand note, it says I have a bomb, blah blah blah, she can't recall what the note said because he took the note back from her, obviously sealing his evidence basically, taking his evidence back, making sure no one can find it, and this woman's like, oh shit, he has a bomb, is he telling the truth? She asks to see the bomb, he opens his suitcase very, very quickly to show four cylinders on the bottom row of the suitcase, four cylinders on top, and they're red, bright red cylinders attached with wires, and red insulation, big ass battery, and after the clothes in the briefcase, he said to her, "Look there, I want two hundred thousand dollars in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival." She, being the flight attendant, said that to the cockpit. She wasn't there, and then when she returned, he said, "She said Mr. Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses." Okay, that's important. The pilot was like, oh shit, what do we do? We better tell the authorities. So he contacts them. He says there's a difficulty. He says there's a problem. He says we're being hijacked. The FBI are like, oh shit, we need to get stuff together because the homeboy wants to escape. We don't want to have anyone die on this plane. So the pilot basically said, we're having technical difficulties. We can't land. He was circling around in the sky for one and a half, two hours, maybe about two hours, they said. More on the two hour side. He circles around over and over again to buy time for the FBI to get everything in order for this Miss D.B. Cooper to have everything. The pilot has stated on record that D.B. Cooper seemed to know what he was talking about. He said he looked like that's Tacoma down there. He said he's flown above it before. He's well-spoken. He um, has done one of those, you know, I know where I'm going, you don't need to take me to Cuba kind of thing. He wasn't stereotypical. So FBI agents managed to use that time. They assembled money from a couple of banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers begin with L, indicated by the FRB of San Francisco, 60, 1963 and 1969 series. So, with serial numbers, on bills it's kind of like a footprint, you can track down the serial number just by looking at it and you can see where that goes. I believe there's a, app, a website right now called like findmybill.com or something like that where everybody who has had that bill, can type in the serial number and it tracks where it goes around America. And I believe that's a thing, I believe there's a place like where you can track all of it and track all of that. Obviously we didn't have that technology back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. It's just new uh, technology that's just been recently made available. So the FBI were thinking, okay, if we can get it all around this area, L serial number, we can kind of use that and track this guy down because we can see the serial numbers being spent in banks or stores or whatever. So, they managed to get um, all the money together. The DB Cooper rejected the military-issued parachutes offered by the personnel demanding civilian parachutes, which operated with rip cords. So the police managed to obtain them from a skydiving school. The reason he didn't want a military grey parachute is obviously they could figure out where that was going. A civilian one with the rip cord, he can pull that cord whenever he wants and release himself from the main parachute. This is going to be crucial in the story of D.B. Cooper and the 727 hijacking. So finally the police FBI have everything together. Cooper tells them to land the plane in Washington. They land, they start refueling the plane. D.B. Cooper says to all the passengers, right, get out of here, get off, I don't want you guys. He just wants the cockpit crew, which is the pilot and the co-pilot. He tells them his plan. He wants them to fly over towards Mexico City and he's gonna take care of the rest there. So they said they're gonna stop at Reno, Nevada, uh, and that would be their refueling stop. And after they stopped in Nevada, they shipped everyone off. They kept the cockpit, and off they go to Mexico City. All right, they're flying now. The 727 has the five people on board: the pilot, the co-pilot, the flight attendant, the flight engineer, and DB Cooper himself. At this point, the plane is now in the air, and they have five planes tra- trailing the hijacked plane. And these are FBI slash police planes, whatever it may be, trying to capture DB Cooper. No body whatsoever in those five planes saw him jump and no one could pinpoint where he landed because they didn't see him jump. So the rest of the cabin crew uh, just chilling, you know, doing what Cooper says. They say they see something around his waist at 8 o'clock and boom, the dude jumps out. 8.13 is estimated that is the time that he decided to jump parachute out. Like I said, the five planes trailing them did not see him jump, so that was an estimated time which suggests that that's when he jumped and peaced on out. Uh, it was 1015 the aircraft was finally landing, uh, DB Cooper wasn't aboard, they did an arm search, they tried to figure out where he jumped, obviously no one could find out where he jumped. Now, the interesting thing about the DB Cooper story is this, that was like your base story, no one knows where he went, he had $200,000 on him, boom, they never found him, they never heard of him again, they never even seen the money being spent, so they don't know what happened to it, D.B. Cooper's story is interesting for this. One, he had civilian parachutes, which means he had four parachutes on him, which is a base parachute and an emergency ripcord chute. When you pull the ripcord on the parachute, it activates your emergency chute. That means your big parachute escapes from the backpack, it like releases all the cords and it just goes away, and you're left with a tinier chute that's like your emergency chute. If he had two of those, four total, he could have easily decoyed three of those before going to his final destination with the fourth. Nobody knows what his main goal here was, he wasn't there to harm people, he wasn't there to do any damage to people, he was just there to get money and to just disappear. It wasn't like he had a specific place he was going to go to according to the FBI, he wasn't like okay I want to fly to this specific destination, be let away in Cuba or whatever it may be. The dude just jumped out of the plane and boom, disappeared. His real name was never found out. They call him DB Cooper because he went by Dan Cooper, the media mistranslated it, we already discussed that. But the crazy thing about the D.B. Cooper case is that even after all this time with the police sketches, the deposit, everything they've done, nobody can know figure out who this guy is. And nobody can figure out where he landed. And that's something that is quite impressive because nobody knows who he is. And this isn't the case of a man being murdered and, you know, they're trying to erase his identity like the Somerton man. This is a man who was actively hijacking a plane, demanding money, and if you can hear noises in the background right now, I apologize, my cat decided to come and eat food right next to me in the microphone. This guy just completely disappeared off the face of the earth. So, a month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of ransom serial numbers to financial institutions like casinos, Racetracks, anything that does gambling, they figured, hey, he might put the money down, make some more, like, it's a way to launder money, basically. They offered a 15% reward to anyone who recovered the money, which would be $25,000. They released serial numbers to the public in 1972. Two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed from Cooper's serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was a hijacker. So, a couple of people made some money off of this, a couple of people, you know, did a fake print in and they pretended they were a hijacker and all that good stuff, but they never actually found the money or the serial numbers that D.P. Cooper had taken. To me, that says he probably already washed them and laundered them, or he gave them somewhere else, put them in a bank like uh, one that isn't in America. I don't know, but if you can't find the money, and it wasn't like it was Bitcoin or something, this is cold hard cash, this is in-hand cash, so this money's just disappeared, and... It's $200,000, it's not a small amount of cash, okay, that's a lot of money. So when you think about it like that, how the hell did he just disappear, $200,000, is just gone. So DB Cooper has basically swindled the FBI at this point, he's swindled everybody, he's swindled the whole world. Because no matter where he landed, they assume that he is dead. And the reason they assume he's dead is because no, they never found money, they never found him or a body, and they never found out his identity. So the FBI is thinking, okay, he did the parachute, he tried to escape and he died while he jumped out of the plane. Whether it be the parachute didn't deploy or he did the ripcord and the base parachute deployed and then the emergency one didn't. They're not really sure, but they assume he died just based on the fact that the money was never spent and his body's never been found. So in 2016, they have suspended the um, D.B. Cooper case. This is in July 2016, they suspended the case. They said there's a 28-part packet of evidence gathered over the years that is offered for the public to read on the FBI website to try and figure out who the hell D.B. Cooper is. So we're talking about D.B. Cooper and we're talking about the evidence now that the FBI they have been profiling. They theorized that Cooper took his alias from a Belgian comic in the 70s featuring a fictional hero, Dan Cooper, who was a member of the Canadian Air Force. That is something that they've used, maybe assuming that the guy wasn't American but was from Berlin or from Germany or something like that. So, that's something that we could always think about is, hey, if it's a negotiable currency, maybe he tra- uh, transferred it into a different currency and those banks don't really check the money or something, they just know it was real. I guarantee you a traveler's exchange isn't going to go through every single bill checking serial numbers, they're just not like that. So, it could have been a different country and it could be alive and well, but they're assuming he died. During his jump, the FBI. I will read this excerpt here from the FBI themselves. They say they speculate uh, Mr. Cooper did not survive his jump, diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions. He probably never even got his chute open. Even if he did land safe, safely, agents contended that survival in the mountain terrain would or for The onset winter would have been impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. This would have required a precisely timed jump, necessitating into cooperation from the flight crew. There is no evidence that Mr. Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew, nor had that he jumped. Clear idea where he jumped when he jumped in total darkness. So, they're assuming he jumped out into the dark, it was a bad time, the weather was bad, his chute never deployed, the man just fell into the mountain, boom, dead. They said in 1980, they tried to find more of the monies, they still couldn't find any. They said if he they guessed correctly, he would have landed near uh, Lewis River or Lake Merwin, in Colombia which is the free-floating the free hypothesis, which is basically saying the ten missing bills from one packet, there's no logical reason that three packets would have remain together after separating from the rest of the money because they found a couple of the, the uh, notes so they're saying okay so if a couple of the notes are found the rest of the money should be around that too, it won't just stay as a stack if ten notes are coming out of a stack, why wouldn't the other? which makes sense when you think about it so they're talking about how he didn't survive the jump, the money fell all that good stuff and he is still either a at large or b he's dead simple as that with the db cooper case there are at least 10 to 15 people who are suspects in the hijacking nobody is actually being charged with it though these are all just people coming forward saying my brother was him or i am him or etc etc nobody is trying to take the fall for it, but everyone's trying to be him, if that makes sense. Everyone wants to be the bad guy, but they don't want to take the bad guy cons- uh, consequences. So, a lot of people coming forward saying they were D.B. Cooper back then, like in the 2000s, in the 90s, all that stuff. Police have never found enough or um, FBI, sorry, they've never found enough evidence to support them. They've just said, okay, whatever, you know, do your thing. Um, aftermath of this event is airport security was increased, obviously. Um, somebody tried to get an airliner to kill President Nixon back in the day. They tried A couple more people tried to hijack. Um, April 2013, old Kossi, who was the owner of a skydiving school, um, said he was found dead in his house in Seattle. His death was ruled as a homicide due to blunt force trauma to the head. Some people say it may be linked to the Cooper case, and the reason they believe that is because the four parachutes that cooper was given came from that skydiving school they believe that the man may have known cooper's real identity cooper came back killed him to make sure he never get caught and then just went off into the darkness again that's a big jump from um, him being dead to being alive to coming back for revenge all that stuff a lot of people just believe it was a home robbery went wrong and the man unfortunately was killed during the home robbery it had nothing to do with cooper but again there's 15 to 20 people claiming they were D.B. Cooper or knew D.B. Cooper. So, for all we know, one of them could be telling the truth. He could have survived, he could have been living under an alias now, and he could be changing completely different things. We don't know for sure. But the case of D.B. Cooper is one that will go down in the history books for sure. And one of those um, records that no one will really know about, true identity of D.B. Cooper if he survived, if he didn't survive, if he stood out there, if he killed that man, I don't know. I don't know, the FBI doesn't know, it's been a long ass time and nobody still knows. So, D.B. Cooper definitely going down in the history books and it's gonna be something that is still, even though on a cold case file, it is something that we can still talk about to this day. And something we can still discuss. And hopefully one day we will actually find out the true identity of D.B. Cooper, his fate and everything else that happened on that fateful day of Thanksgiving Eve and one day, maybe one day, we'll be able to find out just what happened. We're gonna move on now from the D.B. Cooper case onto another case after this quick break of the Iceland woman. This one's a good one, you don't want to miss it. We'll be right back here on the synopsis. Okay, so moving on to the Istal Woman. I know I said Iceland Woman. You could say Isdal or Isdal. I'm going to go with Isdal for now because that's how the spelling is. It's I-S-D-A-L. The Isdal Woman is a name given to a woman who was found dead in Ice Valley in Bergen, Norway. Nobody knows who she is. Nobody knows how she was there or why she got there. But it's a very interesting story regardless. So let's dive into it a little bit. So the police actually said they don't believe this is a suicide. They found the woman and... Once you find out more about the investigation, you'll know why the police said this is not a suicide, something has happened. So her body was found in 1970, they call it one of the most profound Cold War mysteries in Norwegian history. Now we know Norway is not known for being a violent country, actually it's a very peaceful country, if not one of the peaceful in the world, probably behind Sweden and then Denmark. So it was very surprising It was this body was found in Norway, and the fact that she's been unidentified for 48 years, now, 48 years, that's a crazy amount. They ended up burying her body in the Molendal Cemetery, which is in Bergen, Norway. So that was a good thing for them to do, but they didn't know her name, obviously, so they just had it as a placeholder called the Istal Woman. So 19, 1970, November 29th, um, this body was discovered by a man hiking with his two daughters in the Ice Mountains, which they nickname Ice Valley, and they also call it the Death Valley of Norway. Due to its temperatures, its Fahrenheit, its temperatures, its altitude, and just the overall climb of the mountain is a treacherous task apparently. So this man with his two kids found this woman's body. They went down to the police and it was like, yo, you need to check this out. There is a woman's body just chilling in the ice mountains, the ice valley, the death valley. And they didn't know what to do. They saw the woman and the way they found her was pretty... Graphic. I say that. So the interesting thing with the Istor woman, I store woman, whatever you want to call her, is that the front of her body was completely burnt. There was much like the Summerton man that we discussed a little bit yesterday in podcast, there was no tags in her clothing. They were all ripped out or cut out, seemingly, and the whole entire front of her body was burnt to unrecognizable. However, here's the kicker. The back part of her body was completely untouched so her whole entire front was burned but her whole entire back was not which suggests that after cutting clothes after cutting the tags out the clothes i should say the perpetrator of the murder or whatever it may have been burned tried to burn the body by lighting her on fire by the looks of it but it didn't succeed because we have a situation where the back of the body is completely clean now Because of this, the police obviously didn't um, put this as a suicide. They decided this was a murder, and cause of death would be carbon monoxide poisoning, probably from the burning on the front of her body. She may have been paralysed, we don't know. They said in medical reports that she was fine, but I don't know if she was drugged, or if she was brought there by somebody. She knew. I mean, at the end of the day, if you burn the whole entire front of somebody's face, somebody's body, you can easily cover up whatever damage you did if you knocked her out, or whatever it may have been. If you didn't break anything, they can't tell there was bruising or damage on flesh because, hey, guess what? The flesh is completely burnt, so there's no trace of that evidence there. There seems to be a common theme with cutting tags out of clothes. Like I said, with the Somerton Man, with the Island Woman. It seems back in the day, if you cut the item, um, the tag off the item or whatever it may have been, it may have been harder for them to find that person's... Not identity, but find their tracks, where they went, like security cameras, all that stuff. If you don't know where the clothes are from and you're not like fashionable and can't search it, obviously you're going to be struggling to figure out where it came from. So, as this man and his two daughters were walking in the, in the ice valley, and the, one of the little girls uh, smelt burning, like burning tires, they described it as. It was burning flesh, obviously, like she'd just been burnt by the sounds of it, and they could smell the flesh. So they ran to the police, they said, oh God, something happened, you know, help so police went up there they found you know they found uh, two plastic water bottles a plastic passport container rubber boots a woollen jumper a scarf nine on stockings an umbrella a purse a matchbox a watch two earrings and a ring so here's another thing that was interesting about the island woman they found a watch and jewelry that wasn't on her body that was just placed next to her it wasn't like it was burnt with her the whole entire body was burned by the front like we previously said but the jewellery and stuff like that was just placed next to her, almost as like a trophy, like a symbol, like hey, I did this, haha, <laughs> you won't be able to catch me, you won't be able to figure it out. So obviously being uh, stumped by this, the police didn't really have anything to go back on, um, all the marks on the items had been rubbed off or removed, so there was no tags on the boots, on the jewellery, on the watch, anything. So for all the police could know, this was just a knockoff watch, it could be a Rolex, I don't know, I wasn't there, I don't know what kind of watch it was. But regardless, every single tag had been taken off. So, three days later, investigators found two suitcases belonging to this woman, and it was at a railway station. Now, it sounds very familiar. Where have we heard this before? Oh, that's right. We heard it from the Summerton Man. So, the Islam woman and the Summerton Man aren't connected, however, they do have a lot of similarities. The Summerton Man, obviously, they found the orange thread in a suitcase in a railroad um, station. And with the bus ticket that wasn't ever used, the Iceland woman also seems to have the same kind of vibe. You know, the same kind of vibe to it. With the two suitcases being found in the railway station, and they found $100 Deutsche Mark notes, five of them, which is what uh, German cu- uh, currency was back in the day until they switched to the euro. And that's a whole other thing that we won't talk about because that whole switch out was a disaster. They found clothing, shoes, wigs, makeup, eczema cream. 135 Norwegian Kroner, again, um, something that was before Euros, Belgian coins, British coins, Swiss coins, maps, timetables, pair of glasses, sunglasses, cosmetics and a notepad. I'm going to read this quote here. The autopsy was concluded. The woman had died from a combination of incapacitation by phenobarbital and poisoned by carbon monoxide. Phenobarbital is a medication uh, recommended by the World Health Organization The treatment of epilepsy. So I don't know if that has a side effect of where it can knock somebody out, or if it can make them drowsy, but they found that in her system so that may have something to do with death. So continuing reading the autopsy report, as I'm reading here it says they found soot in her lungs which indicated she was alive while she was being burnt. Her neck was slightly bruised um, possibly from a fall or a blow. We discussed her burning her body to cover up like marks and stuff like that. During an autopsy, I guess, they were able to find bruising or marks or something. Maybe there was damage to the neck. And they found in her stomach and her blood content, she had 50 to 70 feminine brand sleeping pills. So, a lot of sleeping pills in the system is going to knock you out, clearly. And they found 12 more sleeping pills next to her body. Now, another interesting thing is back in these days, you've got to remember, dental work was expensive and stuff like that. So, it wasn't common for people to have that much dental work. however... This island woman had her teeth and her jaw removed because she had 12 gold fillings in her mouth. That's 12 teeth in her mouth that were gold. Now, think about that for a second. That's 12 teeth that were gold. Let's say $500 a pop. That's over a thousand, that's over $5,000 worth of dental work. Easily. Easily. Now, this makes it seem that this woman was either undercover, she was a spy, she was doing something shady. And the reason they thought that is obviously, one, she had a lot of currency, she had a lot of makeup, she had cosmetic stuff. And from what they see in the autopsy, this girl's burnt alive. She must have been knocked out from the sleeping pills, this is what we're putting together. She's getting knocked out from the sleeping pills, slashed a bruise into the neck. She's got been hit in the neck, forced to take the sleeping pills, it knocks her out, it burns her, the soot goes into her lungs because her body's still breathing and it kills her. And that's us again, I'm assuming what's happening. And again, when we tell these stories on the synopsis, we kind of go back and forth on different things because these people are mysterious people. They're missing, they have never been identified. So for me to say, okay, well, this is what happened to this woman, I can't tell you that. I cannot tell you the full story because I don't know the full story myself. It's one of those things where we look at the information that we can get online, offline, in libraries and books, and we just go based off of that information and go on from there. And this is one of those things where This woman, and the way she even got to the Ice Valley are unknown. They don't know how she got there, they didn't find footprints, anything like that. Obviously, it's in a snow region, it's going to cover any tracks. So they have no idea where she went, how she got there, or anything like that. So, the police looked at the notepads, they found some codes that this woman had written down, and all it then turned out to be was codes of places she's visited, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Notes on an atlas, not notes, like the coordinates. That's the word, coordinates. There were coordinates on stuff where she went, and people are, are putting ideas out there that, she, like I said, she was a spy. These were all coordinates of places that she killed somebody, or she was like planning to attack somebody. With those 12 golden teeth, that's the biggest thing that put everyone on edge, because that was very expensive for things to happen. To get those teeth is an expensive matter. Now, they asked around the police, obviously. You're going to ask around and see what the hell happened, because this woman, like, isn't... She wasn't royalty, she wasn't rich, she looked like an average woman, obviously, aside to being burned. So people said that they saw her talking to a man who was German. People said that she bro- uh, spoke broken English. People say she smelled like garlic, which is a very... very unique uh, trait to tell. Well, hey, by the way, this chick, she smelled like garlic, like... That's how you can describe to the police. We need a real detailed description of this woman. Can you tell us anything about her? Well, she smelled like garlic. Fantastic, now can you tell me some more helpful information because I can't go off by smell alone. Now we're gonna talk about the death a little bit. I said earlier they said the cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. They said it was gonna be a suicide at the end of the day. They said it was suicide by ingesting sleeping pills. They later changed that verdict to carbon monoxide poisoning and they believed it was suicide, but many other people thought it was murdered. Murdered, murder. Everyone thought it was murder. So on uh, February 5th, 1971, she was given a Catholic burial um, just based on where she was buried. There was a Catholic church. Sixteen members of the police force uh, were there. She was buried in a coffin to preserve her remains and for ease of discernment, in case she like, had to be dug up again or something like that, The ceremony was also photographed in case relatives would come forward at a later date. It has been 40 plus years and no one has still identified this woman, much like the Somerton Man, much like uh, Mr. Cooper that we spoke about earlier. All of these people aren't identifiable and it's unbelievable when you really think about that. How many people in the world do you know personally or on Instagram or on Facebook, whatever it may be, Everyone knows who Kim Kardashian is, or Kylie Jenner, stuff like that. People know these people, they have millions of followers, everything's around them, and it's made it a lot easier to identify people these days. So, tell me why these people who have been unidentified for 50, 60 plus years, 40 years, whatever it may be, cannot still be identified. With the use of the internet and technology we have, we still can't figure out who these people are. They're off the grid, essentially. So, the reason these murders, these mysteries, these unidentified people is so interesting, is because it goes into that conspiracy theory world where people have the ideas, people have the theories about them being cover-ups or murders. The Cooper situation, they all thought that maybe the government was hiding something. The Summerton Man, believe it was a member of gang relation, retaliation or something like that. Who knows? We don't know because we're in that theory zone, that conspiracy zone. So with the Island Woman, there are a lot of theories Obviously, the death was right near the Cold War. Now, for those who don't know what the Cold War was, the Cold War was between 1947 and 1991. It was a long, long war that people don't really know about because, obviously, in America, we had World War I to World War II, and that was it. The Cold War was more of a European war. The United States were somewhat involved, but they kind of backed out in the end, like, you know, de-escalating in 1989. USSR, the USSR, which is now the so the Soviet Union, disbanded. Everything kind of went back down, but the Cold War went on for a very long time, and people don't seem to remember that. And history is lost nowadays with internet and all that stuff. The new generation don't really care, which is fine. It is what it is. You don't need to know about the history because people like me are going to give you the history, so then you can listen to podcasts like this and be like, "Oh, well, check here, you know, we know what the Cold War is now." So. A lot of people said that this woman was a spy for the Cold War because of all the dental work and stuff she had. They believed that it was covering up what her true identity would be, all the fake passports that she had in that suitcase, all the extra change, all the different currencies. It all kind of adds together as a conspiracy theory hey, this girl was actually a spy uh, for Norway or for Russia or for whatever it may have been. So they also put the theory together that she may have been corresponding to top secret trials of a penguin missile. Now, the penguin missile is an anti-ship design. In America, it is called the AGM-119. So it's basically a big old rocket that will blow up any naval ship. They say her movements and tracks kind of give the idea that she was going towards a penguin missile or something like that. So like I said, there's a lot of theories and allegations towards this woman. What we do know is this. She was burnt alive. She had a shit ton of sleeping pills inside of her body and it was a complete disaster. Now, in 1991, there was a taxi driver who took her to her hotel. They never found who he was. But he wanted to remain anonymous and said he picked up the woman and she he saw her join another man before she went to her final destination. Now, in 2002, uh, the son of the leading investigator wrote a book and his book was basically saying You know, we had all these people, didn't want to come forward, and we're not sure what's going on. A resident in 2005, who was 26 in 1970, told a newspaper that after seeing the sketch circulated, he had suspected that the dead woman was the woman he had seen five days before her body was found, when he was hiking on a hillside. Surprisingly, she was dressed lightly for the city rather than a hike, and was walking ahead of two men wearing coats who looked southern. Now, that's like American, like German kind of vibe. She appeared, resigned and seemed to say nothing about them. He knew something was wrong so he wanted to go to the police but he was told to forget about it. Therefore neither his name or his alleged sighting were recorded at the time. So a lot of people are coming forward and saying, hey yo, I saw this woman, she looked like she was in distress but we didn't say anything. It comes back to the rules that we have now. If you say, if you see something, say something. This woman could have been identified if someone said something or if somebody saw something. So, I'm going to read a couple more things right here. 2016, they reopened the case because of an American artist. Uh, 2017, they took analysis of her jawbone. They said it was indicated that she was born in 1930, near Germany, but had moved to France or the France-German border as a child. So, this also goes into the idea that she was actually a spy from Germany in Norway trying to get hold of the Penguin missile or some um, some blueprints or something like that. The whole entire idea of her being a spy kind of links together the Island woman, or Isdall, sorry, the Isdall woman. I keep saying Island, I don't know why. I keep thinking Iceland. Isdall woman. But the idea is that she was a spy from Germany, she moved to France, or became a French spy. Overall, everyone's theory is that she is a spy, she got caught, and they disposed of her body, they disposed of her, and they were making sure she wasn't traceable so there was no retaliation. If they could find out her identity, hey, you might have retaliation from another country. It may have even been an ally that did the murder or the killing, and they didn't want the other countries to find out, so they disposed of the body, they disposed of the clothing, the tanks, all of that stuff to make it almost impossible to find this girl. The only lead they had back then was the rubber boots, the rubber boots they found belong to a store and that's where they got the she smelt of garlic kind uh, description which again, it doesn't help as a description if you're telling me how somebody smells that isn't gonna help me find them that's not gonna help me find their name, it's not gonna help me find their birth if you tell me, hey this person smells of garlic, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? Why would you tell the police that? That was the most stupidest, useless information you could possibly say but, I'm going on a ramble again, I'm going off topic so there's a woman, spy Yes, no, I'll let you guys decide, and we'll go from there. We have a couple more theories that we're going to do, and one of them, which I'm going to do next, is actually something I discussed in the Mandela Effect podcast, and I couldn't remember the story, and I couldn't remember how it went, but I found it. I did some research, and I figured it out, and this was called The Man from Torrid. Now, The Man from Torrid could be either a urban legend, or it could be fact, and it's un unclassified what it is, if it is real or if it's not. A lot of people think it's real based on the fact that there are pictures of this passport and there's pictures of how this happened. There's not pictures of this man, it's just a police sketch. But the passport has physical photo evidence and it has stamps in it and it says it's from the country of Torrid. Other people believe that it was like a long, huge hoax that was done by internet people or it was done back in the day as a joke. We don't know, but what we do know is that we're on the synopsis, we're on the. We got some time to kill. So let's discuss the Man of Torrid. Like I said, we don't know if it's real, we don't know if it's fake, but what we do know is we're on the synopsis. We like to go down the rabbit hole, like we say here. Hey, it's kind of our thing that we're doing now. So we're going to go down the rabbit hole, the Man of Torrid. Let's get into it and discuss this mystery. So before we discuss the Man of Torrid, real quick, I want to throw this out there. Apple Podcasts recently updated their list of supported podcast categories and subcategories, which means there are now many more to choose from. Our settings on the podcast have changed. We used to be in games and hobbies. However, due to our content and what we are doing here on the synopsis, we have changed to leisure. I kind of think that's a good thing for us. So, if you're looking for the synopsis and you're looking on Apple's podcast, we are now underneath the leisure category. I think that suits us a lot better. We discuss a lot more things on this channel than just video games and hobbies and whatnot. Obviously, we started off with games and we started off with a little bit of hobbies, but we've now moved on to the different side of conspiracies, of stories, of everything. We discuss everything on the synopsis and that's why it's great for families, for friends, everybody. Sometimes we get a little bit explicit, but most of the time, we're a PG podcast, and we try and do the best to make you guys happy. A lot of the listeners that we have are in Australia. I looked at my statistics. There's only 70% of you are Australian. So shout out to my Aussie friends. How y'all doing? I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you're enjoying the content. Again, shout out to Tim for being our first ever backer, our first ever supporter for the synopsis. His support to the podcast is really helpful, as is Keanu's and Elisa's, my wife, everyone who is helping me with the podcast, who's giving me ideas for stories or whatever it may be. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for helping me. And we hopefully will continue this podcast for a long time. You guys will enjoy it. I can make it better quality. I can make everything better. So thank you so much for that. Apple Podcasts, again, we are under leisure. Share with your friends. Follow us on Spotify, Anchor, Apple, whatever it may be every little bit helps i'm not doing it like the youtubers or anything like that i just want to spread the word spread the positivity that we have here on the synopsis and make sure that we give you the best damn podcast we possibly can with that being said we are going into the man of torrid so let's get into this let's dive down this rabbit hole and let's make this one of the best segments we could possibly do so the Man of Torrid all started back in 1954. A well-dressed Caucasian man just got off his flight that had gone from Europe to Haneda Airport, that is in Tokyo, Japan. I believe I said that correctly. If I did not and I butchered it, I do apologize to any Japanese people out there. Aligato, Gazaimas, thank you very much for understanding. So this man came and I key quote here is when I said he came from a plane from a Europe. Not from a country, but from Europe, and this is going to play into this story. So he told TSA, or whatever the officials are at that time, that he was a businessman who traveled frequently. His wallet was full of currencies from various countries along Europe. He spoke French, Japanese, and English, among other seven Seven languages. Wow, he was a very diverse man, apparently. He said he was in Japan for business, and that the trip was his third to the country this year. When they asked him for his passport, he presented a document from a place that wasn't in our timeline, in our existence. It said Torrid. He said it's a country located between the border of France and Spain. And there was actually stamps in his passport from Japan and a number of other countries to pretty much say that he was a frequent flyer from Torrid. So, before we get any further into the story, Torrid is supposed to be in between France and Spain now. Now, this is more of, not conspiracy, but it's a mystery, that is for sure. The mystery is that, number one, this country doesn't exist in our world. In our world, there's no such place as Torrid. However, this man is adamant he was upon irate that people were suggesting that his country didn't exist. Now tell me, one, why would a man have a passport or documentation that's stamped from multiple countries from a country that doesn't exist? Like, if he's from Torrid and he's got stamps from France, Germany, Spain, Japan, okay, cool. And you've gone to those countries, allegedly, and you have stamps which are legitimate stamps in your passport. So why would this man get so irate and so upset about the fact that nobody knows what his country is? They're suggesting that he's crazy. Now, this man has the documentation. He has the paperwork. So obviously he isn't crazy. Obviously he knows what he's talking about. But nobody else seems to know. Now this comes into our theory that we had with the Mandela Effect a few episodes ago. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. I think it was episode 10 or 11. Oh, it's thundering out here, guys. Just so you know. Oh, a little bit of lightning too. Rainy day today Going off topic Sorry Back onto the man From Torres Parallel universe theory Is that A person Is In multiple universes At the same time So as I'm recording This podcast right now There's another version of me That's sitting in the chair Next to me Not sitting in my chair And At any given time, I could slip into that universe, or that person could slip into my universe. And effectively, we trade places without even knowing it. So then you would be in a different universe to what you normally used to, and that person who is a copy parallel universe of you will be in your universe. It goes back to the Berenstein bear theory, and obviously the Mandela Effect. So the idea is you can slip in and out of different dimensions, and this carbon copy of you does the exact same thing, because obviously you're messing with the parallel universes. This is what the idea was behind the Torrid Man. The man from Torrid is suggested that he slipped in somehow through an alternate universe or a parallel universe or wherever it may have been. Accidentally while he was on the plane, little to anyone else's knowledge because obviously they would switch places. So he was very irate and no one knew where he was from but on top of that he had documentation literally stating where he was from and they didn't believe him. So I'd be pretty mad too honestly. So the officials were left pretty baffled at customs like this man has documentation, he has a passport, he has a cheque, he has bank records, he has literal stamps from the countries that he's been to on this passport that they are redeeming fake. So he does what the logical thing would be, and the logical thing would be, okay, well let's call the company that I flew in to talk to, then that way they can verify who I am, they can tell you where I'm from, and I can be on my own way, right? Okay, cool, good idea, so customs officials call this company. Not only have they never heard of where this guy is from, but they've also never heard of him himself. So obviously that gets him a little bit pissy, so he's like, okay, let me try the hotel. Well, let me call the hotel. They call the hotel, no reservation under his name. This exact hotel that he said that he was going to be staying at, no reservation. Bank details, didn't check out. Every single thing that he had did not exist, apparently. So they was like, okay, well maybe this guy is a little bit crazy, but you know he has the documentation. So let's have him point on the map where this guy... Torrid is. So they put out a map, they show it to the dude, and he points at a tiny microstate, which is called Andorra, in the Pyrenees Mountains, and it's right in between, hey, France and Spain, which is exactly where he said Torrid was. So now these officials are telling him, hey, that's not a real country, that doesn't exist, so now the man is beyond pissed, he's really mad, he's like, listen, if you're the fucking with me or something like that, you're playing a joke on me, it's not cool. Let me just go about my business, let me go into Japan, let me do my business meeting, and let me go home. Customs are like, well look dude, we're not playing a joke on you, we're being legit. This place, this territory you're talking about, doesn't exist. And where you pointed to isn't a country, it's a microstate. So as far as we're concerned, this is false documentation, this is a false passport. Everything you're giving us is fake information. So what do they do here? Like, okay, well... We can't arrest him because he does have the documentation. He does have a looking official and he does have the official stamps. Let's transport him to a hotel. Let's keep him under guard. Wait till the morning and then we can talk to him more in the morning when he calms down. Obviously he was mad. We're like let's just chat to him in the morning. Give him time to relax. Maybe he was confused. Maybe he was on the plane for too long. We don't know. But let's keep him in a hotel under guard. So they're going to detain this man. They're going to try and figure out who he is. Where he came from. So they're looking, they're trying to find out if Torrid is real, they're trying to find any information online, anything they can about Torrid. So this man's allegations are either true or not. So he's in the middle of this hotel, he's under guard, 24 hour surveillance, they're gonna keep him overnight. He's 17 to 18 stories high. In Japan, if you know, if you've been to Japan, 17 to 18 stories is pretty damn high, they have skyscrapers there, they build up, they don't build out. So the Japanese hotels are very high, even their uh, like malls and stuff like that, when you go to shop, they're like 5, 6, 7 stories high, and that's because they prefer to build them up. So each floor will be like, one floor will be video games, one floor will be clothes, like that. And they just stack them on top of each other, and then that way it's just easier, more convenient for people to shop and go where they want to go to. So this man's on like the 17th floor. So the next morning, they go in, they knock on the door, they're like okay, maybe he's awake, maybe he's calmed down, maybe he can talk to us more. They open the door, and the dude's gone. Completely gone, completely disappeared. So, he's disappeared, his documentation's gone, his passport license, his driver's license, everything completely disappeared. Now, people are looking for this man, they can't find him, they can't find any evidence of him, any traces of him, they can't even find his name because his passport's disappeared, everything's gone. They don't know this man's name, they don't know anything about him. Now, a lot of people are debating whether this mystery is fact or fiction. Now, it could be either or. This fiction is a fantastic story because the plot's there, they made up a perfectly nice name for a country that sounds legitimate in between the borders of France and Spain. It seems like a legitimate place Everything kind of checks out what would be a real-life scenario of a mystery man appearing and then disappearing. And this isn't about, like, how people disappear with the deaths or stuff like that. This is kind of going into that time-traveling parallel universe conspiracy theory mysteries. But nonetheless, it is a very popular one that a lot of people have probably heard of online. Now, if it is real, and this is a fact, then where the hell did this man go, first of all? How did he get into Japan? If he came on a plane, then nobody else noticed that his passport was weird. Like, he was supposed to be leaving from Torrid to Japan. At what point did anyone else on that plane say, hey, hang on a second, Torrid isn't real, or, oh yeah, it's a real place. And then when he landed, why was no one defending him? Why was no one sticking up, being like, well, yeah, he was on the plane, he got on the plane legally, everyone said it was fine, so why is he being detained now? It's one of those things where... If it is fact there's a lot of missing points and if it's fiction then you kind of put everything together and that's what a lot of these mysteries are we had it with the Isla woman we had it with the cooper we had it with the Summerton man all of these stories have points what are missing whether it be their identity their clothing tags their true nature of why they were there and it leads the person to, be, to put everything together in their own brain leading to multiple theories and conspiracy ideas. Now, the idea of cons- conspiracy theories is one that has been around since the dawn of time whether it be Bush doing 9-11, the government being in on the Pentagon whether it be the Somerton Man being covered up by the Australian government because he was a spy whatever it may be, conspiracy theories have been around for a long time and they will continue to be there. However, what will continue to also be there are facts. And the facts of these cases that we talked about today, the mysterious people not identifying them and whatever it may be, it helps these people come up with more ideas and more theories about why they weren't identified. And you have to think of it like this. If it's been 45, 50, 60, 70 years, however long it has been, and somebody still hasn't identified this person, it's either a cover-up, or that person was such a hermit, such a loner, loner that they just weren't known by anybody. And that's hard to believe in a world of over 4 billion people that someone like the Summerton Man can just disappear suddenly and nobody knows who he is. Somebody like uh, DB Cooper can just disappear suddenly and nobody knows where he is. The Island Woman, no one knows where she was or who she was, and it makes no sense when you really sit down and think about it. That all these people have an identity, but yet they weren't able to find it. You can't use fingerprints, they weren't in the database. Okay, so. Were they illegal? Were they off the grid? Were they off the radar? Something has to be different for these people not to be identified. So this is where all your conspiracy theories come in. Where everyone says it's cover-ups and all this shit, about it being spies and all that. So just when you're talking about these stories, like we're talking about here, The Man from Torrid, don't let conspiracy theories dilute the thought process of what's going through. The Man from Torrid is a scenario where, if it is real and is fact, was there potential of parallel universes and things like that? I don't know about The Man From Torrid being fact or fiction. I'm just telling the stories and leaving everything else for you guys to interpret it yourself and for you guys to try and look into yourself if you want to. If you don't want to, cool, just listen to the podcast and we'll talk about the podcast, you know what I'm saying? But ideally, I want you guys to make your own assumptions and your own ideas from what's going on here. So The Man From Torrid, fact or fiction, I don't know, I'll leave it up to you. Now we've all heard about Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper is the infamous case about the serial killer in England who went around killing the prostitutes, and everyone knows the story, everyone knows the tale. But one tale that I'm going to talk to you about next is called Bella, which is of the Witch Elm. It's an English folk tale that happened in Stowbridge in England in 1943. It is a mystery that has still not been discovered to this. Nobody knows the identity of this woman or anything about her life. So we're going to discuss a little bit about the better of the witch elm. And I think we're just going to jump right in because I don't want to keep you guys for three hours talking about these theories. Hey, if you want me to talk about these mysteries and stuff like that, by all means, I will do that. Just let me know. I'll keep you here for hours upon end. I have hundreds of thousands of stories stories that I could talk about. I'm going to talk about this one, I'm going to talk about two more after this one, and then we're going to call it a day on the podcast. So let's get into The Better of Witch Elm. So in 1943, four boys were playing outside. They went inside a hollow trunk and they found a human skull in a witch hazel tree. This is what becomes the Witch Elm case. Police returned to the scene and inside of the tree they found the complete skeleton of a middle-aged woman. Okay, there she had Bits of clothing left, one shoe, a cheap wedding ring, and a severed hand which was buried nearby. They found that doing search later on, and the corpse had something in its mouth suggesting that she died from being choked to death, effectively. I can't say the word asphyxiation, something like that, but she basically died from not being able to breathe. So, this was in 1943, and you have to remember this was right in between World War II. This was just before the Cold War started, we discussed that a little bit earlier, This Cold War was in 1946. But this was World War II, it was starting. everything was like really intense at that point. Identification of people was harder to do than ever because during the war, a lot of people died unfortunately. A lot of people couldn't be identified because it was just mass casualties, whether it be from military, pedestrians, whatever it may be. We all remember the um, Blitzberg that came over and killed a lot of bunch of people. And if you don't remember the Blitzberg, look at the World War II history, just look into it a little bit. It's very fascinating about how everything started, how everything ended, and all basically was around because of Hitler, so, you know, World War II was a terrible time in human history. Hopefully we don't go into World War Three, but you never know with Russia and America, politics and all that stuff, we're not going to get into that. We're talking about this um, story here. So, the authorities could discern the woman kind of had been dead for a year, a year and a half, so they could kind of see what she looked like but not really, she was 35, around 5 foot, and she had brown hair. She had a lot of messed up teeth, okay, so she had like those old school jacked up peasant teeth, what we had back in the day. You know the typical English, let me drink some tea, big old yellow messed up mashers, that kind of teeth, you know. So, they found the body, they didn't really know where to go because... There was no one to go with information, there was so much going on in the war, and there was nobody who saw anything. They went out to the press, they released it public, and nobody came forward, so people slowly just kind of forgot about the incidents. And this was in 1943, okay? Now, in 1943-1944, most people are saying it was 44. They had a lot of messages appearing around near the old hill, not far from where the body was found. And it was on white chalk on the empty side of a building. And it said, who put Rubella down the witch elm? Witch hazel and witch elms are easily mistaken for each other. So a witch elm could be mistaken for a witch, a witch hazel. Which are two types of trees, similar locations, similar phrases. All that stuff started showing up around the um, Hagley wood. And it became, you know, who put Bella down the witch elm and who put Lubella down the witch elm all that stuff after a week or two the phrase became more consistent in the form of who put Bella in the witch which was kind of shorthand for saying the the witch elm or whatever it may be they spelt witch w-i-c-h which was different like the way you spell the tree compared to w-i-t-c-h you know the spooky mystical creature that goes around killing everybody so all these messages had started being put out there people were naming this person Lubella or Bella and nobody still figured out what was going on, nobody came forward, the case was cold, again another cold case, what we're discussing, shocking right, I know, the best lead that the police came up with is that the Nazis had been operating a spy ring, and one of the women was connected to the spies, and her name was Clarabella, the idea of this description kind of fit what happened to go to the Nazi spy ring, that it may have been this person, but they didn't have enough information to confirm that this was the person they were looking for, However, it was assumed that this Clarabella Drunkers, which was her last name, fit the description of one that was in a Nazi spy ring. They had irregular teeth, she was in her thirties, so everything kind of came together. So they assumed that she was killed by somebody, they found out she was a spy, and that was that. But the police didn't have any solid information or evidence, so that was put to rest as an inconclusive case. Now with the graffiti and the writing and stuff like that, nobody knows who did that, Nobody knows how it started, but years and years and years after the murder, the phrase kept popping up. At the same time as the thing, spray painted in white, all caps, exactly where the body was found in 1999, and it said, who put Bella in the witch? So this has gone for 30 plus years now, and people still don't know fully who this woman was. They, again, assuming it was all spies, and a lot of these missing people things have a lot of things in common with the spy idea. and. During the time, it's more or not likely that they were spies for something, whether it be the Cold War or the World War, but again, they cannot confirm that information, and it goes back to the theories of cover-ups and whatever. That's not what we're talking about here, though. What we're talking about is the fact that this woman was found inside of a tree, they still can't identify her, and they didn't even bury the body, they just kind of disposed of it. ...because they wasn't sure, no family came forward, no friends came forward... ...hell, even the Nazis didn't like try and recover the body or anything like that... ...they just kind of let it be, which doesn't surprise me, honestly... ...but Bella, who put her in the witch, nobody still knows today... ...and to finish off this podcast, what we're going to do... ...is we're going to do something a little bit different... ...and I'm going to talk about a missing persons case, unidentified... ...that's in my neck of the woods, where I live out in Missouri... So, we're going to talk about a couple of Missouri missing people, and then what we're going to do is we're going to finish off again, as we usually do with this time online, we don't talk about what we talked about in the beginning, we just kind of finish up any updates or anything like that at the end, then that way we can just nice and slowly finish the podcast, but we're going to do next couple of stories, stuff that happened in Missouri, missing people, unidentified, so we're going to get right into that, and then we're going to end up winding the podcast down. I've kept you guys here long enough. I hope you've enjoyed. So let's get into two stories of what we have today on the synopsis. Winding down, we're going to talk about the last two missing body cases or whatever it may be. We're going to talk about first the St. Charles County Jane Doe, which is a terrible case. And this is one of those things where just reading it, you're like, wow, I can't believe stuff like this happened. And it's unfortunate. It really is. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the St. Charles County Jane Doe and we're also going to discuss the St. Louis John Doe, who was made in 1992. So this Jane Doe comes from 1968, a long time ago now. Again, like most of these, the body of a white girl aged two to three years old was found in Lake Alton. The body was thrown into the river and the child's remains were discovered by two fishermen who were just out there you know doing their thing trying to catch some fish you know maybe some trout some salmon i don't know what comes in missouri's river and the merrimack and stuff like that. i don't know what goes into the missouri rivers okay but they're out there they're fishing they get something on the line it comes back it's a suitcase they open the suitcase and they found this child's remains it had blue clothes wrapped around it like blue clothes line and was weighted with two 10 pound barbells that were also found in the suitcase. So this purse, this body of this child had been wrapped up, thrown in with barbells. Ideally, for nobody to ever find it again. That's what the goal seems to be here. But again, this is a Jane Doe who cannot be identified. So we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Features upon her remains was a large tooth that was abnormal and a scar above one of her eyes. She had long blonde hair. Although due to composition, decomposition, her eye color could not be determined. She was approximately 2 feet 8 inches and weighed around 40 pounds. She was only wearing one thing at the time of her death, which was white underwear, which suggests to the police that the child was there as a rape victim or something like that. The child had been dead for about a month before the body was discovered. That's what they said after they found the body, they did their autopsy. They said it had been about a month since this child had died, unfortunately. She was then declared a homicide victim, but they didn't release information on how she was murdered. And that's something that was key because normally in these cases, everyone releases the information of how this person was killed or how they died or how they were murdered or whatever it may be. But in this case, they did not do that, which suggests that they knew something was amiss, that something was wrong. And they didn't want to release that to public information that early, especially in the 60s, that could cause outcry or cause anything that would be damaging to the county, to the city, whatever it may be. They ended up um, laying this child to rest in an unmarked grave in the children's section of the cemetery, and it was awful. Like, obviously, no one wants to bury a child with an unmarked grave, not knowing their name, anything like that, but nobody came forward, no one had any information, it was one of those things. So, in 2015, This is what we're going to talk about now. We're in 2015. The National Center of Missing and Exploited Children actually constructed an image of this child. Now, I know it's a long time in the future, but sometimes you can get pictures and stuff like that. You get information and it kind of clumps together and they get that. So, in 2015, they actually re-exhumed the body and they tried to obtain a DNA sample. They later announced that the DNA testing was unsuccessful. And uh, obviously because of that, like 50 years, it's going to be much harder to get DNA from a body if they didn't preserve it. They just put it in there. You know, it's kind of going to be the end. Everything's going to like deteriorate. It's not going to be good. But they said the exemption would yield a more accurate estimation of the girl's age at the time of her death. Her skull was studied to create more accurate compositions of image of her appearance during her life. So they dug up the body, they used the skull and they tried to figure out what this girl looked like when she was alive to try and maybe get somebody to come forward, somebody to say something about what happened on that fateful night. Now, here's the thing. If you're doing this from 1968 and 2015, chances are the people who murdered this child or whatever they did are already dead or they've gone to a different city, a different state to escape whatever persecution they may or may not have thought they would have got. So at this point, you're at a cold case, you know, no one's going to be found, No one's, nothing's going to happen, there's going to be a situation where she's exhumed this body, and unfortunately for this poor child, no one's going to ever know her name, no one's going to ever know what happened to her, she's just going to be a Jane Doe that will basically stay a part of St. Charles County folklore for all of time, and unfortunately, that's going to be what her impact in life was just being the Jane Doe who does not have a name and unfortunately will just be known as that forever. So moving on to our second murder mystery in St. Louis, Aljondo, which is in March 1992, the skeleton of a white male aged 15 to 25 was located in St. Louis, Missouri, in a building that had previously been burned down. He was 5'7", weighed about 145, he had blonde or brown hair, was wearing a pink shirt, a white shirt, some black coats, striped jeans, socks, blah blah blah. You know, the usual clothing stuff, they listed it all out here as I'm doing my research. I'm seeing that it says he may have had an injury where he sustained while he was alive, and that was a fracture to one of his arms, which could be there in self defense before the murder or the kin that took place. Now, these two that I've just mentioned, the one before, previously with the St. Charles County girl, and now this one with the St. Louis John Doe, these are the only two that we're talking about today that haven't had a spy connection to them. So this was actually classified as a homicide, obviously, because they found multiple stab wounds that were discovered in his ribs, and obviously with the fracture to the arm, it's kind of self-defense, you know it's gonna be a homicide, somebody's out to get him, that's how it's gonna end. These are the only two, like I said, that aren't spy-related, they are just straight murders or homicides that people haven't been discovered thinking about that, there's so many times that people have probably been murdered or killed or just disappeared off the face of the earth and nobody's done anything about it because nobody knows who they are or nobody wants to come forward and that person's life is just an unmarked grave. We see it with the Unknown Soldier. That's a World War 2 reference. The Unknown Soldier was a man who got killed, they buried him. Literally his grave says Unknown Soldier and that is his legacy. His legacy is the Unknown Soldier. We don't know what his real name was. We'll never know what his real name was. They tried to exhume the body before and then something happened, it didn't take any DNA. I don't remember the full details of it. I can go into that more if you want to on another podcast talking about the wars and stuff like that. But right now we're talking about these two homicide murders. It's just crazy to me that somebody could be killed like that so quickly, so easily, and then everyone doesn't know who they are. Their bodies are never found. It's just crazy. So this man was found in a burnt building. It was previously burned down. And the shocking thing about this is that when he was originally found, they thought he was a black male who was 45. Now that's a big difference between a white teenager to a black 45-year-old man. So they were doing a lot of things in this case, trying to figure stuff out. It went cold eventually. They didn't have any witnesses. They didn't have any evidence. It was probably just one of those things where it just kind of faded off into obscurity. People didn't really think about it. So upon their research they found out that this man could have been dead from 1989 to 1992 which means his body could have been in that abandoned burnt building for three years so nobody even went into that building potentially for those three years or they went in there saw the body and said nah fuck this we're out again one of those things where people say don't say anything when they see something it could have probably helped the police or Whoever was doing the investigation in the long run, but hey, that's not what I'm here for, I'm not telling you how to live your life, I'm just saying, if you find a body, you should probably say something about it, yeah? So as the case went cold, you know, they just kind of let it go, it faded away, eventually they said, you know what, we're going to reopen the case, we're going to exhume the body and see if there's any more physical information that we can use to identify who this gentleman is or figure out what happened. You know, try and get something. Maybe there was a fiber that we missed or something like that. During the um, exumption of the body, this is where it got a little bit strange. His skull was missing and there was damage to the casket. So somebody had, after this man had died, and it had to have been recently after he died, because here's the thing. When they lower a casket or a coffin, they dig out the grave. And they dig the grave six feet and they put the dirt on top of it. And then the grass has to grow on top of the dirt and the dirt will flatten out and it will just, you know, become part of the land again because the dirt's been disrupted so for somebody to get into the coffin or the casket remove somebody's skull and do damage to it they had to have been there during either when the burial happened or soon after the burial meaning that whoever killed this man or whoever, you know, had something to do with it knew where the body was being buried and had a personal vendetta there's no other explanation. I mean, if you're a gravedigger, you're going in to find gold, to find watches, money, whatever it may be. There are grave diggers still in this world. They go to rich people's graves after they die. They know they're going to be buried in fancy stuff. They take it. People don't have shame. And hey, you know what? That's how they want to make a living? Let them make a living like that, whatever. You ain't gonna ever dig me up and find anything good on me. I'm a poor, poor man, so... That's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but you know, that's how people make their money. I can't, you know... They're hustling. They're doing. <laughs> they're doing something, right? You know what I mean? Shit. But that's so. Somebody dug up this man's grave. They took his skull, and then they damaged the casket. So to me, that's a personal vendetta. That's somebody who wants to really make sure this person isn't identified, to make sure that they get away with their crime, and to make sure nothing is ever come to fruition in this case. Now the other side of that is that you know nobody's going to go in there and be like, oh yeah, I want a skull. Like, how does somebody go into a cemetery walk out with a skull? Like, if this man was dead, like, there's still probably gonna be something left on his face. Even if he's been dead for three years, the decomp- decomposition takes a while. It takes like five to seven years, I believe, for the body to be fully obliterated and nothing but skeleton. So, This skull probably still had some flesh on it or something like that, so they really, really wanted to cover their tracks on this one. And to damage the casket as well while they're doing it, it's not just going to be prying it open with a crowbar because you can just unlock it. If there's physical damage, it was done on purpose like with a hammer or with a bat or with something, probably the shovel. The shovel was probably in hand and they probably damaged it with the shovel, so that makes more sense. I mean, that's what I would do if I had the weapon already in my hand, you may as well use that instead of bringing something else, it just burdens the load, right? So, probably using the shovel, they damaged the casket, took the skull, off they go. So, whoever did this, they still don't know who this person is to this day. They definitely know that the person really didn't want to get caught because it would go in that far of a length to ensure it. So, the St. Louis John Doe, still unfound to this day, nobody knows. It was only 20 plus years ago. But the fact still remains is that it's even happening up to, to date. People are still being gone missing, people are still not being found. Identification is easier than ever to find nowadays with all the photo recognitions, the face apps, the fingerprints, stuff like that. But some people still can't be identified. And that's either by being covered up or they really are smart and not getting themselves on the grid too much. I don't know. I don't know how you can get yourself off the grid. And I don't know, I'm not like a scientist or a secret agent or any of that shit. I don't know how to get myself off the grid. What I do know is if people do that, they are doing very, very smart things to get that. And especially to erase somebody's whole internet history or past or whatever it may be. I'm not talking about your cookie browser and all that shit, like, oh, let me quickly delete this. I'm talking about your whole thing, like your Facebook, Instagram, everything. Your whole internet footprint is deleted. And that's crazy that people can do that. If people really want to go out their way to make sure that somebody isn't found, as we've talked about in this episode, they can make sure that people aren't found. Scary to think about, nonetheless to say. So with that, Jane Doe and the John Doe, we are gonna go into our this time online. Ohio state rep Candice Keller blames mass shooting on drag queen advocates, homosexual marriages, open borders, and even Barack Obama. Well, needless to say that we're not going to get into this discussion again. We talked about it yesterday when we opened the podcast about the mass shootings and stuff like that. Obviously, Ohio State are going to probably be changing their representative very, very, very soon. She quickly deleted this post that she posted on Facebook that she was ranting about, all that stuff that we just mentioned. So... You know, the, the best part is that they just get rid of her. Honestly, just get rid of her, stop the drama, stop the madness. Like, obviously, we know the reason the mass shootings is because people aren't mentally stable. At the end of the day, it also comes down just to ignorance and bliss. A lot of people in America, and I'm not trash talking, don't get me wrong. It happens in every single country and across the world. But because I live here, I'm saying in America. A lot of people are ignorant to the fact that... Immigrants have been here for a long time they came over for a reason. I myself am an immigrant. Just because I speak English and you guys can hear me doesn't mean I haven't immigrated from somewhere. I have immigrated. I immigrated from England to America, right? It's a part of the world now. It's a part of life. Everybody can't help where they were born. But if they want to make a better life for themselves, so let them make a better life for themselves. I don't care if you don't like it. If you don't have to like it. But you don't need to go out there killing people and shooting people for no reason whatsoever apart from where they were born. That's like me going into your house and shooting you Well you you were born in Ohio. Oh, Ohio sucks, bang. Like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it just baffles me that people in this day and age, in 2019, still think like that. Horrific acts like this, Walmart shooting in El Paso, the shooting we had in Dayton, Ohio. Like, it's just getting to a point now where something needs to be done. And again, we're not talking politics. We're not ranting and raving. We're just speaking straight facts. It's out of control, something needs to change, and I don't know what it is, but if it doesn't change soon, the world is just going to get a worse and worse place for our children, for their kids, just for the future. The future's looking bleak unless we change something and make the world a better place. We've got to start working together to make that happen. With that being said guys, we're going to round off the podcast here, the synopsis, episode 13, we've been talking about mysteries, theories, cold cases. All that good stuff. Unidentified people. Hey, maybe next episode we'll talk about unidentified objects. I don't know. We'll just see where it goes. So, this has been Zach from the Synopsis. I thank you all for listening. Again, Apple Podcast changed us to a leisure section on the channel. We have a new Instagram. Just so you guys know, it's at the Synopsis Podcast. Uh, the spaces are going to be underscore, so the underscore Synopsis underscore podcast. But we are now on Instagram. Go give us a follow. Comment on our latest pictures, tell me stuff you want to see or hear in the podcast, what you want me to talk about. Do you like the way it's structured with this time online being at the start of the episode and then at the end to kind of round it off with other information that has happened throughout the day. Do you like what we're doing with the theories, with the communication like the Mandela Effect, stuff like that. So let me know, let's get this a communicated podcast, let's get the fans involved, let's make it a family kind of vibe. I appreciate you guys for listening again. We're on Anchor.fm, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, you can sponsor us, you can follow us, do whatever you want, help support the podcast, help make us a great uh, podcast and that we can keep doing what we're doing every other day. This episode, I think it was a fun episode. It was fun to investigate these things, it was fun to talk about them, and like I said, even though they seem all over the place, this is us doing the research. We can't talk about the people because we don't know who they are, so it's kind of difficult, but we got there in the end. We figured some stuff out. Like I said, this all started from us going down the rabbit hole off the Summerton Man. So with that being said, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your continuous support, for your continuous listenership. Shout out to all my people who are listening, the Australians, the Americans, the English, even the Italians. There's an Italian one out there. He probably clicked it by mistake, but hey, he listened, so I appreciate you. Ciao! So, thank you for listening again, guys. This has been Zach from The Synopsis. We've enjoyed you coming down the rabbit hole. And you guys will be listening to me next time. Thank you for listening to The Synopsis.